Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, one of the issues or one of the uh, topics that has really come to the fore once again as a result of this pandemic has been the absolute central role of technology in all of our lives, the digital digitalization, if you will, of our everyday lives. If you think about working from home, schooling from home, it's just kind of really accelerated the embrace of digital technology, the upsides as well as the downsides. And it seemed like a great time uh, checking with our next guest, uh, next guest, Brad Smith. He's a president of Microsoft. And just today, out with the, um, I guess, the paperback version of his New York Times bestselling book entitled Tools and Weapons, The Promise and the Peril of the Digital Age. Brad, thanks so much for joining us here. It's really topical here as I think you know a lot of people are kind of rethinking the role of technology in their lives. What is kind of your takeaway over the last 18 months of how maybe people use, interact, and, and, and think about technology? Well, things have changed so quickly. It's why my co-author, Carol Ann Brown, and I added three new chapters to the okay. paperback edition of the book. One of them to address the question you just asked, how have we seen the pandemic impact the use of technology and which of these changes are likely to really stick with us and last? And, you know, we're certainly seeing you know, technology being put to use in a variety of new ways. It's creating more flexibility for us, um, the ability to see a doctor through a telehealth service, the ability of a sick child perhaps to be able to stay connected to a classroom with, with distance learning, uh, the ability of so many of us you know, to work in more flexible ways, including on the road or from home. Um, but we've also seen other challenges. In part, we are seeing new cybersecurity attacks because this technology is so ubiquitous. Um, and in other ways, we're just seeing the digital divide almost exacerbated. It's as if people who lack broadband access are living in the 1990s, while the rest of us are living in the 2020s. And that is a divide that is going to exacerbate every other divide in society if we don't move faster to address it. You know, over and over, executives we speak to say they're really worried about the skills that this workforce has and whether it's ready for a, an environment where technology reigns. You have been working through Microsoft and LinkedIn to rescale and upscale people. Companies like JP Morgan have been working with cities to get more people into this workforce. Do you have a prescription? Is there any cure you can see to people entering this workforce with skills that they need? Well, I do think there's a prescription, and I think it's going to take a, a societally wide commitment uh, to really put that prescription to, into action. And, we, and it, it's why we devote a lot of attention to this in our book, both as a specific topic around the tech uh, talent gap for all of us, but also in specific areas like cybersecurity skills. We're seeing clear shortages, say, of cybersecurity professionals and digital skills more broadly. Um, what it's going to take, I think, is for all of us to lean in. Um, those of us in the tech sector, for a company like Microsoft and the LinkedIn service that we operate, there's a tremendous opportunity we're pursuing, increasingly with nonprofits and others, to use online learning to help fill the gap. But that's not going to be sufficient by itself. I think employers 
need to reinvest, increase our spending in the skilling of the people who work for us. Uh, I think we have a huge opportunity as a country uh, to do more with community colleges. Uh, and that's one thing the White House is now focused on, the Congress and the infrastructure bill is, is addressing. Um, this is an, a, a moment where we can just you know, create so many opportunities for more people, not by asking them to get a no, new four-year college degree, but take a course or two at a community college or just spend more time as part of their work to add to their skill set. So, you know, Brad, cybersecurity is obviously it's a big issue. And I think when Microsoft itself uh, was the subject of a, a, a hack in December 2020, the SolarWinds attack, that really got people's attention. If the, God, if the smart folks at Microsoft are susceptible here, how about the rest of us here? Tell us what actually happened and, you know, what was the response from Microsoft? Well, it's the first chapter now of the paperback edition of the book, and we tell the inside story of really the cyber sleuthing that it took, not just at Microsoft, but some of the other really sophisticated cybersecurity firms like FireEye to put the pieces together. You know, we now know that this was an attack launched by the Russian Foreign Intelligence Agency. It targeted you know, major parts of the United States government, many tech companies. It targeted foreign companies and governments. Uh, and it was executed with great persistence, sophistication, and scale. It was based on a disruption of the software supply chain, planting malware you know, into a, a legitimate company, SolarWinds and its product. Uh, and you know, what we then talk about are the lessons that we all need to take away from this. It starts with recognizing the sophistication and magnitude of the problem. It then leads to solutions. Some of these are, I think, really on our shoulders uh, for a company like Microsoft, and we're increasing our investment, and we are and will do more to address this. Um, but we all need to work together. You know, there was a meeting at the White House two weeks ago. It brought together not just tech companies, but critical infrastructure companies and insurance companies and colleges and universities. Um, we're going to need to pursue more information sharing um, companies like ours are going to need to report more to the government, and the government, as it has started, is now you know, sharing more information across the government as a whole so we don't end up with pieces of information trapped in these different information silos. Brad, what worries you most in the coming months? We've seen major hacks since solar winds. We hear of major things that could happen that can disrupt the entire economy. What are you concerned about in the coming months? Well, I think the biggest you know, thing we should worry about is that we'll you know, look at this crisis and do too little to address it. Um, you know, people talk about, you know, will we face someday a digital Pearl Harbor or a digital 9-11? Um, we have it you know, in our ability to avoid that kind of day. But right. only if we heed these lessons and all work together. And you know, this is not just for big tech companies or people in government. It means for every yep. business. You know, deploying, the, in many cases, cybersecurity protections they've already bought but haven't yet installed or used. Uh, it means for consumers that we turn on yep. you know, two-factor authentication and the like. So we all have a role we need to play. Hey, Brad, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate getting your thoughts and comments here. Brad Smith, president of Microsoft, on his updated content of his book entitled Tools and Weapons, The Promise and the Peril of the Digital Age. 
now out in paperback with three new chapters. Uh, so take a look at that. Well, here we are again uh, right after Labor Day and uh, some folks maybe coming back to work for the first time since the pandemic began. Certainly on Wall Street, there was a lot of talk of that being kind of a you know, soft line in the sand, if you will, uh, when a lot of the CEOs wanted their folks uh, back in the office, at least temporarily. Uh, let's get the latest update on that. Jenny Serain, finance reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us on the phone from New York City. So, Jenny, again, big, big talk earlier in the year. How are the Wall Street firms delivering in terms of getting their folks back to work? Yeah, you know, I think, honestly, a lot of the biggest firms have brought a good majority of their workers back. And the thing is, it's just not the way they wanted it to be back. You know, people are in masks. There's no, um, you know, no congregating in meeting rooms. It's just um, maybe not the big fireworks and the big return to normal that a lot of these CEOs have been promising for so much of this year. Um, and that's been a big disappointment. And I think you've seen a lot of smaller firms actually just say, you know what, we're just going to wait. We're going to wait till we can go back without masks. We're going to wait till we can go back without social distancing. Um, so you kind of see this, this growing divide. The divergence is also spectacular. You see Goldman Sachs bankers back in the office since, you know, June or July, really. You see Citigroup having folks come in a couple days a week. You see Morgan Stanley, about 50% I've been hearing is back in the office compared to what, 30% across the financial services industry. Jenny, they've been hitting record numbers without coming back. Why do they have to? I think so much of it is just these CEOs wanting their folks back. They seem to think that culture is really made in the office. Um, a lot of times they also point to like the junior bankers and the need for younger talent to have that in-person mentoring and training. Um, so you just, it's kind of a, a definitely a culture question. Um, and, you know, we don't see that in other big industries. You don't see that in tech. You don't see that in autos. So it's definitely a very unique industry in terms of Wall Street, just being really adamant that they want these folks back at their desks. You know, I remember Lloyd Blankfein years ago saying that Goldman Sachs is not a financial institution. It's a tech company. Um, and so I think about the workforces of global Wall Street, a lot of them, I'm not sure what the percentage is, but a big, big percentage is our tech workers. And the competitors for those workers are Google and Facebook. And if Google and Facebook aren't bringing their people back, I would think that Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley would have a hard time bringing their tech workers back. What are you hearing? Yeah, that's actually absolutely true. What was interesting was we um, we interviewed um, the person in charge of uh, tech workers at Citigroup in their trading and investment banking divisions, and he actually was saying that because their CEO, Jane Frazier, has been so, so adamant that she's going to be open to remote work and um, has really been softer stance on the whole return to office question, that he's actually had way more success in hiring and recruiting more technology workers. So you definitely see the divergence, and you see these banks kind of thinking strategically now like can we you know get better talent because we can be a little softer than maybe the goldmans or the jp morgans of the world now jenny is this forcing or at least compelling banks to be looking outside of new york for talent yeah you know that's actually a really interesting element of all this they've been very adamant that they want to move to places like texas and florida um partially because you know their workers want to live in those places and partially because it's lower cost office space um but now they're coming up on the fact that those places have much lower vaccination rates and you know trying to force folks back in in places where vaccine rates are so so low has created this um very unique tension that these banks are having to work through and, and deal with um that you just yeah you don't really see that in other industries as much where they've been a little bit more flexible about the the work from home life 
What's been the pushback, if any, or the reaction from the workers themselves? Do they want to be back in the office? If I'm a banker, trader, research analyst, do I want to be back in the office? Yeah, it's, I think it's diverging. Um, you know, a lot of traders, I think they are wanting to be back in the office these days simply because it's um, – what we hear is that on slow trading days, people in the office, you know, they make more trades. There's that water cooler chat, and there's, there's just a little bit more activity on slower days when everybody's together. Um, that being said, almost every survey that comes out says that workers just want flexibility. You know, they want to work from home a few days a week. They want to be in the office a few days a week and they want to decide their schedules. Um, so it's, it's definitely, um, there's a big gulf in between what folks want and, and what, you know, ultimately might happen given mm -hmm. these CEOs are aggressively wanting folks back. Um, but it's definitely interesting. Jenny, yeah, it really is. We'll certainly stay on top of it going forward because uh, they are big, big customers of Bloomberg, very uh, important to Bloomberg. Jennifer Surain, a finance reporter for Bloomberg News. Again, her story, Wall Street limps into post-Labor Day return, and it's derailed by Delta. So a really fascinating story. And Shanali, you know it as well as anybody. You covered this beat. Do you think it's just going to be a gradual thing? You know, it's a very, it's a very tough time on Wall Street. The question is, do you get paid more for coming in, Paul? Yeah. Yeah, I know. There's definitely an issue. Uh, you know, if you can dine in New York, I think as Mr. Gorman from Morgan Stanley said, if you can eat out in New York, you can certainly come into the office. Well, Friday's disappointing jobs report for a lot of people suggests that it will provide some air cover, if you will, for the Fed to delay tapering uh, talks to the end of this year, maybe even into next year, and that might provide some support for this market. Let's check in with Brian Vendig. He's president of MJP Wealth Advisors. They have about $750 million in assets under management located in Westport, Connecticut. So, Brian, that seems to be the narrative that we're hearing in, in, in the wake of that jobs report. Is that something you supported? Do you think the Fed now has some opportunity to maybe withhold on some of that tapering, at least for the short term? I definitely think so. I think uh, the weakened jobs report and also just the fact that, you know, it seems like um, it is taking longer for um, job recovery to happen within the United States. I think just due to the high productivity numbers, investments that we've seen in technology that companies have made. And, and now that um, we're not seeing these, these exceeding expectations on the jobs report, I think causes the Fed to want to be more patient uh, to wait to the next jobs report. Uh, to see how the month of September goes, especially with schools reopening and uh, enhanced and extended unemployment benefits expiring. Um, and that, as a result, it pushes back the tapering timeline probably towards later on in the year or the beginning of next year. I think investors were expecting that in the September meeting, um, those tapering announcements would start sooner. And as a result, um, the fact that it's being pushed out is, is providing some optimism from an asset valuation perspective. The taper is such a big conversation here, but I don't think what's as flushed out is how much is that taper going to set certain markets off the current course that they're on? I totally agree. That, that's a very fair point. I think we're in this very unique environment where we have a high level of fiscal spending uh, paired with monetary policy. And I think really what investors are more concerned about is the dot plot with interest rates. I think the tapering is something that probably should happen because there is a expanding GDP recovery. There are sectors that are coming back. Granted, things are taking a little bit longer due to the impacts of, of Delta, as we've seen other institutions lowering uh, GDP, GDP forecasts for the year. 
So I think tapering is a um, is a situational uh, predicament that we're in, trying to get a sense of where the Fed is going to be going for that longer term monetary policy decision, which is really critical around interest rates. All right. So given that background, Brian, what are the sectors that you guys uh, think present the best opportunities right now? Sure. I mean, we have been trying to stay as fairly balanced between value versus growth, not trying to take one side of that argument, especially because of the rebalancing and things that are going on in the global economy, as we saw with inflation and interest rate concerns, which then uh, came back uh, off a little bit. And now we're talking, we're thinking about longer term interest rates going up again over the next 12 months. So we still like uh, the cyclical side of the trade. Uh, with um, financials and basic materials and industrials and even real estate uh, paired with, you know, sticking with some of those technology companies that are just pervasive to our society that's helping us support data integration, you know, 5G, you know, as well as um, software uh, in the cloud to run not only uh, uh, your business, but also just to help to support running your life. And what are you looking at in terms of the Delta variant and what what could derail some of the current pricing we've seen in the market? How bad does it have to be that we'll actually start to see it show up in the stock market? You're, you're right. I mean, the market has been unbelievably resistant as different things have come up over the course of trying to move forward from the impact of the pandemic last year. But I think the things that are important to keep in mind is more than just the variant story. I mean, technically, policy mistakes, both from the Fed and Washington, could definitely disrupt the market. We have to keep in mind that this month, not only is it a a seasonally tough month for the market, but we also have uh, conversations happening in Washington on taxes and additional spending. We have the Fed meeting. Um, We also know that there's other variants that are unfortunately around the corner and we need support, obviously, from, from science to continue to lead us out of this with, you know, a debate on boosters and then adolescents being able to get vaccinated. So I think it's a combination of several variables that if they were all to coalesce, you know, over the next couple of months, definitely can cause some investor concern as we move into next year. However, I think the fact that decision makers are trying to take a thoughtful and gradual approach. I think our friends in Washington are going to come up with uh, some agreements that aren't going to be as drastic as what we've heard on the campaign trail for taxes. I think this will continue to help to support uh, the markets. And also we have to keep in mind that earnings has been extremely solid for publicly traded companies and outlooks for next year with companies still trying to rebuild supply chains, getting through these labor shortages. These are all things that still set up for, I think, Still some more room for growth. Brian, just real quickly, 30 seconds. Uh, Bitcoin, crypto, do your clients ask you about it? And if so, what do you say? Uh, absolutely. It, it, is, it is something that clients do ask us about. Um, we, we try to educate on different ways to get exposure to digital assets. You don't always have to you know, own the coin per se. But I would just say right now, um, I know there's some obviously some news coming out with with countries adopting uh, Bitcoin as, as a right. currency, we still believe right now it's a, it's a speculative investment, uh, and, and we're looking for more productive uses in society moving forward. 
All right, Brian, thanks so much uh, for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time. Brian Vendig, he's president, MJP Wealth Advisors, getting his thoughts on these markets here. So uh, suggesting that's still constructive on the markets, broadly uh, defined, has some sectors there that are of interest. Uh, but on Bitcoin, staying a little bit cautious here, at least at this early stage. This is Bloomberg. Well, we look down to Washington, uh, President Biden and his administration, administration have approximately $4 trillion of spending bills winding their ways through Congress. We got the fiscal stimulus and then the broader spending bill. Let's get the latest on when those bills could be passed. Will they be passed? We check in with Eric Wasson, congressional reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Washington. So, Eric, we had the $550 billion infrastructure plan passed. Now there's this other $3.5 billion spending bill. The question for a lot of people is, do they have to be linked? Do they have to be passed jointly? And if so, does that create a problem? Yeah, so the, uh, the $550 billion uh, infrastructure bill has passed uh, the Senate, but it's waiting final approval in the House. Uh, progressives, uh, the liberal part of the Democratic Party, have said that they would not uh, support the passage of that, uh, and they would rebel if they do not get, uh, you know, passage first of this $3.5 trillion social spending measure, which also has tax increases on the wealthy and corporations. So they've made this link. Uh, there was a big uh, a battle in August where progressives uh, lost, basically the moderates who, who got a guarantee from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi that there would be a vote by September 27th, uh, come hell or high water, on the uh, infrastructure bill. So uh, right now the committees this week are working behind the scenes trying to get together on the policy provisions, the exact language, the exact policies for that bigger bill. But it's, it's, a real, uh, it's a real challenge, and I think the apple cart was a bit upset by uh, Joe Manchin, the moderate senator, last week. He said, we need to do a pause on that bigger bill, and that's raising a lot of questions about all of this. Yeah, speaking of Manchin as well, what are parts of this bill, the, part of this $3.5 trillion plan, that may not make it to see the light of day? Well, one thing that we've, we've thought about is that they could make a cut it down uh, you know, two or three trillion dollars, and probably uh, get some moderate support. I mean, one thing you can do is is all the programs in there, whether it's home care for the elderly, uh, for child care, for for Medicaid expansion, Medicare expansion. You could limit that in the number of years, creating sort of a fiscal cliff. So you could give them five years of that, and say Congress has to come back and extend it. Uh, you know, that could be a nerve-wracking thing for some Democrats. But on the other hand, whenever social programs are expanded, such as Obamacare, they tend to become popular over time and uh, hard to, to repeal. So that's one thing we're looking at. But again, the other main uh, message from the White House, especially Ron Klain's Royal Chief of Staff over the weekend is, look, Manchin's worried about adding the deficit, but if we follow these tax increases, it will be fully paid for. So the real battle is on the tax side. Uh, we broke and had a big scoop on the Bloomberg Terminal last week about the menu of options that's increasing, not just from the uh, corporate uh, tax rate uh, side uh, and capital gains increases, but also uh, just looking at a whole... Uh, set of, uh, of new uh, you know, stock buyback taxes, other uh, corporate CEO excess pay taxes that they, that they might turn to, to to pay for this measure. All right, Eric, who's really driving the bus here in terms of getting this thing done? Is it Pelosi? Is it Schumer? Is it President Biden? Or is it perhaps the other side of the aisle? I think at the, at the end of the day, you have to say Pelosi is a key figure in this. She set this deadline as a goal of September. It'll be up to her to try to meet that. And, uh, and if she can't, can't meet that, to figure out a way to finesse it. Uh, I think that, you know, Schumer and Biden uh, certainly have encouraged and tried to get Congress to move as quickly as possible. But it's really uh, Pelosi who set these deadlines. So, you know, if they can't, if they can't meet that, uh, she's going to have to figure out how that works out.
Do you think that the markets are underestimating how messy this fall season might get when it comes to the aid that's coming out of Washington? I think they're underestimating perhaps on the debt ceiling. You know, we see yet to see any plan uh, addition, in addition to these two big bills we talked about. There's also the need to fund the government, which runs out of its fiscal year at the end of this month. And the related issue of the, the debt ceiling, uh, you know, uh, it's going to impact probably in October or maybe even November when the government will default on its payments. There's no real plan yet uh, to pass that. Uh, you know, Republicans have said Democrats will do it on their own. Democrats are not going to use the budget reconciliation process for that. They're going to try to get Republicans on board. Uh, we had a scoop last week about uh, the White House meeting with Democrats coming up with messaging to blame Republicans. This is going to be very messy indeed, and, and I have yet to see, even with only a few, few uh, session days left in September, how they're going to bring this up. That kind of goes to my question here. It's September 7th already, Eric. What are the dates that we should really be focusing on here? Well, the Senate will come back uh, uh, next Monday night, and I think on the 14th there's going to be a caucus-wide meeting of, of Senate Democrats where they're going to make some decisions, I'm told, on, on the spending bill and the debt ceiling, et cetera. So we're, we're really looking at that day. The week following that is when the House comes back for votes. Are they going to really bring, be able to bring uh, this big bill to the floor then to meet this 27th deadline? They work through that weekend. Those are going to be some key dates. But as of right now, the, both chambers are officially uh, – uh, the, there's no floor action. They're in recess. All right, Eric. Thank you uh, so much for that. It's an ongoing story, and we'll stay on top of that. We'll check back in with you, Eric, to get some of the latest. Eric Wasson, congressional reporter for Bloomberg News, just giving you the update on, again, the, the, the bigger spending bill, the $3.5 trillion bill, and then, of course, the $550 billion infrastructure bill winding their ways through both chambers of Congress. And hopefully, as Speaker Pelosi has suggested, get something done by the end of September. And Shanali, your question's spot on. What's the market discounting? Yeah, and other things are expiring. Expanded unemployment benefits, student loan moratoriums. That's a big one everyone's watching for the end of September. And evictions. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.